Straits brings legal and business insights at the intersection of the shipping and energy sectors. This podcast series offers trends, developments, challenges and topics of interest from Reed Smith litigation, regulatory and finance lawyers across our network of global offices. If you have any questions about the topics discussed on this podcast, please do contact our speakers. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Trading Straits. I am Sally-Ann Underhill, a partner in the transportation group of Reed Smith. I specialise in shipping and deal with all types of shipping disputes in the broadest sense, including sale contracts, logistics issues, and of course, shipbuilding. Hi, I'm Thor Malouf. I'm also a partner in the transportation group of Reed Smith. My practice focuses on all aspects of dry shipping, including charter party, bill of lading and shipbuilding disputes, as well as logistics. In this first episode of three, we'll talk about the legal aspects of the initial stages of a shipbuilding project, including how new technologies impact specifications and performance criteria, changes to the shipbuilding contract, and main types of contracts used to document shipbuilding deals. In our second and third episodes, we'll go on to discuss refund guarantees and delays during construction, and then we'll talk about cancelling shipbuilding contracts and warranty claims. So, let's begin this episode by discussing new and innovative technologies in shipbuilding and how these can impact specifications and standards versus performance criteria. There's been a rise in the use of new and experimental technologies. Increasing focus on decarbonisation and global events have led to an uptick in vessel construction involving experimental and state-of-the-art technologies. Dual fuel LNG and LPG vessels, which are able to burn both traditional and conventional HFO bunkers, as well as the LNG or LPG cargoes that they might actually carry. State-of-the-art designs allow LNG and LPG fuels to be used for direct mechanical drive of the propeller via the main gearbox, rather than via diesel-electric plant. Also, exhaust gas cleaning equipment, known as scrubbers, are often installed to allow the use on board of cheaper, lower-spec, high-sulfur fuels. Increasing regulation of the industry has led to the need to comply with For example, EEXI and CII regulations and existing vessels are having modifications and installations to bring them in line. Also, ammonia-ready vessels are another example. Ammonia, NH3, is a compound of nitrogen and hydrogen. As ammonia contains no carbon, it doesn't emit any CO2 when it's used as a fuel in an internal combustion engine. Some vessels currently on order by major shipping lines like NYK and PIL are being built with the intention of being ammonia ready, able to be switched on or converted to being fueled by ammonia once regular supplies become available. Sale projects involving cooperation between owners and long-term charterers are also underway to install and sometimes to retrofit sails on board vessels to harness wind power and these will lessen reliance on mechanical propulsion. For example, ventures between MC Shipping and Cargill and Vale and MOL. The technical advisors behind Cargill's project expect those sales to reduce fuel consumption by 25% for retrofits and 30% for new builds. Now, where all of these new and innovative technologies are involved in a project, there'll inevitably be 
some lack of certainty over the design of the vessel and its systems and uncertainty over what can be expected in terms of the performance of the vessel. A buyer and a yard can aim to allocate risks between them by agreeing a detailed technical specification, which the vessel should adhere to, and by agreeing certain levels of performance capabilities, which will be measured at the sea trials prior to delivery. So, when a buyer contracts with a yard to build or retrofit a vessel, what's the position in English law between specifications and capabilities? Where new and innovative technology is at play, there's some uncertainty as to whether construction will result in a ship that meets performance criteria. In most shipbuilding contracts, it's the shipyard's responsibility to use reasonable skill and care to design the ship to meet the agreed technical specifications. There can be disputes about design liability where the ship complies with the technical specification in the contract but still fails to meet the agreed performance criteria. So, for example, under a contract requiring installation of scrubbers, what if the emissions gases still do not meet contractual emissions criteria? In English law, whether or not the yard's compliance with the agreed technical specification trumps the buyer's right to receive a ship capable of achieving agreed performance criteria is a matter of constructing the specific contract terms. But the approach of the English courts has tended to be that just because construction projects have been done in line with the agreed technical specifications, that does not excuse later failure to comply with performance criteria. Now that rule has been followed even where something has been built in line with the specifications, but would simply never be physically capable of meeting agreed performance criteria. That might be because of errors or other issues with the specification, like whether the specification itself is flawed or it's just simply experimental or state-of-the-art. In the case of the MT Hogard versus Renewables Robin Rig East Limited, the courts considered the structural failure of wind turbine towers. They fail within two years of their installation in the Solway Firth in Scotland. A key legal issue considered by the courts was the construction of legal and technical documents that together made up the contract. This case went all the way from the first instance technology and construction court through the Court of Appeal to the UK Supreme Court, as it then was, where the issues had to be distilled down to the construction of two interplaying parts of the contract. It had been agreed between the buyer and the contractor that there would be compliance with a specification. And that was that the design was to be in accordance with specification J101. And also it had been agreed that there would be compliance with performance criteria. Specifically, the design would ensure a lifetime of 20 years. Unfortunately for the contractor, the specification incorporated calculations later found to be incorrect. And as a result, the wind farm was constructed with a design that was incapable of lasting for 20 years due to errors. This meant the construction didn't meet the agreed performance criteria, even though it was built in line with the specification. The contractor argued it should not be liable. It had exercised reasonable skill and care and had complied with the specification. But the courts agreed the contractor had exercised reasonable skill and care and it had complied with the specification 
but in this case, compliance with that specification would not have enabled the foundations to last 20 years because the specification contained an error and compliance with the performance criteria prevailed and took priority over compliance with the specification. So therefore, the contractor was liable for failure to meet the performance warranty. In deciding against the contractor, the Supreme Court held that where two contract provisions impose different or inconsistent standards, the more rigorous or demanding requirement prevails, and the less rigorous requirement can be interpreted as a minimum standard. So in this case, the more rigorous performance criteria, the need for a lifetime of 20 years, took priority over the requirement to comply with the technical specification. More specifically, where the contract requires compliance with a specified design and specified performance criteria, and where the performance criteria cannot be achieved by complying with the design, the performance criteria prevail. That will generally be the case where the customer has specified or approved the design, and the contractor will bear the risk. Interpretation of how technical specifications and any performance criteria interact are going to vary from contract to contract. The fact that each layer of the court, in this case, reversed the previous court's decision highlights the difficulties of interpreting contracts, especially where there's a large suite of legal and technical documents and even lawyers will come to different views on how these documents should be interpreted. So what lessons can we learn from this case? By analogy with modern shipbuilding contracts, where a contract requires a vessel or a part of a vessel, like an LNG fuel system, to be built to a particular specification, the fact that it's built to that specification won't excuse non-compliance by the vessel with performance warranties or criteria, like speed and performance based on LNG fuel, unless the contract clearly says so. So what points can we take away? Well, for buyers, specifications and standards, particularly where design is new and innovative, might be erroneous or become obsolete during the years taken to build the vessel. Buyers need to be clear about the need to comply with performance criteria, and these will usually be more important than compliance with a specification. Set these out clearly in the contract, together with either liquidated damages or a right to reject delivery for non-compliance. Be aware of any contractual clauses that change the allocation of risk for designs during the build itself. For example, clauses that don't make it clear that the review and approval of plans and drawings do not diminish the yard's obligations for defects. Takeaway points for yards? Well, the principle of performance criteria being paramount puts a heavy onus on the yards or, or any designers. Following an agreed specification won't suffice where it proves inadequate for meeting performance criteria. Where the contract contains a requirement to comply with certain standards in shipbuilding or design, simply following those standards, or even complying with the current state of the art will not be enough, where the standard or state of the art is inadequate to meet the performance criteria. So if the yard needs the technical specification or a particular industry standard to be paramount, they need to make sure the contract makes this absolutely clear. Also, in the Robin Rigg case, the courts found the contractor had used reasonable care and skill, notwithstanding the fact the specification contained an error. So in that case, the actual error in the specification was not known to the designers or to the class who published the applicable standard. There was an error in one of the parameters in one of the formulas. 
This could cause difficulty for a yard trying to pass on liability because there was an absence of negligence. Liability in the absence of negligence might not be covered under professional indemnity insurance and can cause difficulty with recovery under contracts with any third parties involved. So yards should check their insurance and their contracts with third parties carefully. Thanks very much, Thor. In light of all those changes in terms of technology, let's have a look at changes to the shipbuilding contract itself. As I say, with a constantly changing commercial and regulatory environment, amendments to shipbuilding contracts are perhaps inevitable, especially if there's a fleet of vessels being built and designed. Many design modifications will be anticipated However, with the backlogs in the orders with the yards and increasingly environmentally focused amendments to the regulatory regime, it's quite possible that a vessel will end up being built after a change in requirements comes into force. So that's exactly what happened in the case of the crescendo that I will refer to in a subsequent episode. In that situation, it related to tank coatings and the fact that the vessel had not been completed before the regime in respect of tank coatings came into force. Equally, given the issues with the supply chain at the moment, a yard might want to change the materials that it's using to make the vessels. Or the buyer might suddenly decide that it wants to use and operate the vessel in a new area and therefore further new requirements might be required to be complied with. So for all of those reasons, it's important to consider what you do and how you go about making changes to the shipbuilding contract. The SAJ standard form does not require variations to be formally documented. Article 5, for example, says that the specifications may be modified and or changed by written agreements. Such agreement may be affected by an exchange of letters signed by the authorised representatives of the parties or by, and this is quite old fashioned, cables confirmed by such letters. The new build conform goes a bit further and says that when the buyer requests reasonable modifications or changes in the specification and or plans and drawings, he should submit them in writing. And then once the yard responds to them, the buyer may elect in writing to agree to the necessary amendments to the contract, in which case the builder will build the vessel in accordance with the contract as amended. But there could well be other circumstances in which amendments arise. Parties often therefore set out detailed provisions for variation. Some contracts even say that without such written variation, signed before the additional work is completed, the yard or the builder waives the right to claim additional payment. The yard would therefore do well to bear in mind the recent developments relating to non-all modification clauses, by which I mean clauses which say that any amendments to the contract have to be in writing. So in the case of Rock Advertising Limited, the Supreme Court in England clarified that no oral modification clauses which impose specific formalities for variation are effective 
to prevent an oral variation of a contract. This decision represented a change in direction from previous case law, which had suggested that the party's autonomy to vary the contractual agreements that it had entered into should be upheld even where a non-all modification clause was in place. So, for example, in the case of Globe Motors, the Court of Appeal had found that a no-all modification clause did not prevent the parties from varying the agreement orally or in any other informal manner. But under English law, it is that now settled that where a contract sets out specific formalities for the contract to be varied, the clauses will be upheld, subject only to issues of estoppel. It's perhaps interesting also to note that this is different to the current position under Singapore law. The Singapore Court of Appeal has recently declined to follow the Rock advertising decision when considering the legal effect of such clauses. Instead, in Singapore, the court is still following the rather more liberal approach that we used to have in England, of finding that such clauses simply raise a rebuttable presumption that all modifications are invalid. Although the approach of the Singapore Court of Appeal did not form part of the decision as it was decided obiter, it is important to bear in mind the material departure from the English law position. Dealing just with one more point um, at this particular part of the episode, I was just going to look at price escalation clauses, because again, this is something that's dealing with changes that might arise during the life of the shipbuilding contract and how the parties want to deal with them. So putting this into context at the moment, both wages and price inflation are running really high globally. So where a fixed contract price is normally agreed, but construction takes a few years, as at the moment, inflation and currency fluctuations can become really serious issues. The parties might therefore consider including a price escalation clause to share the risk of increasing raw material costs and currency fluctuations. But Neither the SHA nor the new build conforms contain a mechanism for increases in the purchase price, and price escalation clauses remain relatively rare. The China Maritime Arbitration Commission form does provide at Article 6 for the impact of increases in the price of steel and main propulsion equipment, and also for fluctuations in the interest and exchange rates to be shared between the buyer and the yard on a proportionate basis to be agreed between the parties. There has been a relatively rare decision on price escalation clauses which was heard by arbitrators in London. So in London Arbitration 2106, it was held that a yard could rely on a price escalation clause to claim an increase in the purchase price over a period when construction of the vessel was delayed due to the yard's breach of contract. And that's important because the tribunal recognised that increases in price under price escalation clauses were triggered by market movements and operated separately and therefore independently from the liquidated damages for delay regime under the contract, 
which provided the buyer's remedy for delay due to the yard's failure to meet the delivery date under the contract. So they're dealt with completely separately, which meant that the yard was able to rely on the price escalation clause, notwithstanding its breach. But if a yard has not included a price escalation clause in the shipbuilding contract, it may face difficulty in trying to leverage its position unilaterally to increase the price during the construction. That's because the English courts may be willing to treat an agreement to pay additional sums for the building of a vessel when a lower price has already been agreed as avoidable contract for economic duress or failure of consideration. If a price escalation clause is to be included in a shipbuilding contract, it's important that it specifies three things. One, what prices will trigger an increase in the purchase price and how? So, for example, an increase in the price of a particular quantity of a certain type of steel. The more detailed, probably the better, so it can be really clearly established. Two, when will the price increases be calculated? And three, against which agreed and published benchmarks will this be done? For example, MEPS, International Steel Review. Consideration should also be given, however, to whether the purchase price should also go down if prices fall. So for the final part of today's podcast, Thor will cover the types of contract form typically used to document shipbuilding contracts. Thanks, Sally-Anne. The most commonly used standard form for shipbuilding contracts is the Shipbuilders Association of Japan form, or the SAJ form. It's preferred by yards throughout Asia, but it does tend to be heavily amended, especially by Chinese yards, actually. The Chinese Maritime Arbitration Commission has published its own shipbuilding form, the CMAC form that you've already mentioned, but it's not been widely adopted as yet. BIMCO have also produced their own shipbuilding form, the New Build Con, which is more buyer-friendly than the SAJ form in general. It aims to be more generally acceptable to buyers and yards in the market. But let's take a look just at a few of the key areas of difference between the most commonly encountered SAJ form and the BIMCO New Build Con forms. I mentioned previously design risks. For design risk, the new build con places responsibility for design expressly on the builder. And the SAJ form, which is more yard friendly, is silent about who bears the design risks. On modification that sally talked about, the new build con provides a mechanism where the buyer can challenge a yard's refusal to agree to a modification, that being slightly more buyer friendly. Under the SAJ form, a yard can refuse a buyer's proposed modifications, although the discretion to refuse should not be exercised unreasonably. When it comes to termination rights, the new build con is slightly more buyer friendly. A buyer can terminate if a yard becomes insolvent, and by contrast under the SAJ form, there isn't a similar express right. When it comes to sea trials and accepting um, delivery of the vessel, under the new build con, the buyer has five days following receipt of notice from the yard to accept or to reject, and there's no express provision for deemed acceptance. 
and by contrast under the SAJ form, if the buyer makes no decision after the same five days or doesn't communicate at all, they're deemed to have accepted the vessel. So again, slightly more yard friendly. Lastly, when it comes to builders' warranties, under the new build con, the yards obliged to repair defects and damage to the vessel caused as a direct and immediate consequence of a defect. Now, by contrast, under the SAJ form, all liability is excluded for consequential damage to the vessel caused by a defect. Now, as mentioned previously, the standard forms are typically heavily amended and provisions can of course be borrowed and adapted from different forms to meet the needs and requirements of the buyer and the yard. Thank you for joining today's podcast, the first in our series of three on the law of shipbuilding, about the legal aspects of the initial stages of a shipbuilding project, including how new technologies impact specifications and performance criteria, changes to the shipbuilding contract, and the main types of contracts used to document shipbuilding deals. From me, Sally-Ann Underhill, and Thor Maloof from Reed Smith. Please join us for our second and third episodes in which we will go on to discuss refund guarantees and delays during construction, as well as cancelling shipbuilding contracts and warranty claims. Trading Straits is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reedsmith's energy and natural resources or transportation practices, please email tradingstraits at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher and reedsmith.com and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.